0: How thoroughly suited to our present lot and needs! One more effort was made by Pharaoh to induce Moses to render only a partial obedience unto God's demands. Go ye, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Chapter 10, verse 24 If you must be so unsociable... If you will be so mulish and not allow your children to remain in Sunday school, at least retain your membership with us and pay into the church treasury as hitherto. Ah, had Moses feared the wrath of the king, he had yielded this point. Instead, he remained firm and said, Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not an hoof be left behind, for thereof must we take to serve the Lord our God. Chapter 10, verses 25 and 26. Well, might the apostle write, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Second Corinthians two eleven. No, for they have been fully exposed to us in holy writ. All of what has been before us here is included in these words. By faith he forsook Egypt, and all of it is written for our learning. Romans 15.4 The offers made by Pharaoh to Moses to prevent Israel from completely forsaking Egypt in their worship of the Lord are, in essence, the very temptations which his people now have to overcome if they are to fully heed and obey Second Corinthians 6, 14 and 17. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. O my Christian reader, seek grace, to obtain the uncompromising spirit of Moses. When urged to worship God in Egypt, that is, the whitewashed churches of the world, say it is impossible, for what communion hath light with darkness? When pressed to leave your children in a worldly Sunday school to be instructed by those who have not the fear of God upon them, refuse. When invited to at least retain your membership in the Holy Spirit-deserted churches and contribute of your means to their upkeep, declined to do so, not fearing the wrath of the King. The courage of Moses is here set forth in three degrees. He feared not man, he feared not the greatest of men, a king. He feared not that which most affrights people, the wrath of the king. The king's wrath is as the roaring of a lion, Proverbs 19.12. It was his faith in God which expelled this fear. When faith is exercised, the greatest terrors cannot alarm saints. And my reader, those who forsake Egypt, especially religions of Egypt, Must expect to encounter the wrath of man, none hate so bitterly, none act so cruelly, none come out more in their true colors, than the worldly religionist when the veneer of hypocritical piety has been seen through by a child of God, yet their wrath is less to be feared than was Pharaoh's. If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Hebrews 11.27 Ah, here is the key to all that has been before us. Moses endured, which tells us of the state of his heart. He endured the attractive honors and alluring pleasures of Egypt's court. He endured the repeated compromises of Pharaoh. He endured the terrors which his conduct might inspire, his courage was no mere flash in the pan or momentary bravado, but was steady and real. Oh, how little of this faith and its blessed fruit of holy boldness is now to be seen in poor, degenerate Christendom! Yet how could it be otherwise, when worldliness has quenched the spirit on every hand, May we who have by sovereign grace been drawn to Christ outside the camp be very jealous and watchful against grieving the Spirit. A precise word which is here rendered, endured, is not employed elsewhere in the New Testament. Scholars tell us that it is derived from a root meaning, strength, or fortitude, to bear evils undergo danger with resolution and courage so as not to faint beneath them, but hold on our way to the end. It was a word most appropriate to express the firmness of Moses' mind in this work of faith in forsaking Egypt. He met with a long course of difficulties and was repeatedly threatened by the king, and in addition, he had to endure a great conflict with his own unbelieving brethren. But he strengthened himself with spiritual courage and resolution to abide in his duty to the finish. How? Whereby was his strength renewed? For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Ah, it was no mulish stupidity No obstinate imprudence that wrought such a resolution in Moses, but the constant occupation of his heart with the divine perfections. We say the constant occupation. For, note carefully, our text does not say he endured because he saw him who is invisible, but as seeing him who is invisible. It was a continuous act. Oh, to be able to say in our measure, I have set the Lord always before me, Psalm 16.8. This is absolutely essential if faith and courage are to be kept healthy. Nothing else will enable us to endure the frictions and trials of life, the attractions and distractions of the world, the assaults of Satan. He endured as seeing Him who is invisible. John Owen declared, God is said to be invisible, as He is absolutely, in respect of His essence, and is often so called in Scripture. Romans 1 verse 20, Galatians 1 verse 15, 1 Timothy 1 17. But there is a peculiar reason for this description of Him here. Moses was in that state and condition, and had those things to do wherein he stood in need continually of divine power and assistance. Whence this should proceed, he could not discern by his senses. His bodily eyes could behold no present assistance, for God is invisible. And it requires an especial act of the mind in expecting help from him who cannot be seen. Wherefore, this is here ascribed to him, he saw him who was in himself invisible, that is, he saw him by faith, whom he could not see with his eyes. This word invisible shows the uselessness, as well as sin, of making images to represent God and warns against our forming any apprehensions in our mind patterned after the likeness of any visible object, though God be invisible, yet He sees us. He endured as seeing Him who is invisible. Again, Owen said, a double act of the faith of Moses is intended herein. First, a clear, distinct view and apprehension of God in His omnipresence, power and faithfulness, Second, a fixed trust in him on their account, at all times and on all occasions. This he rested on, this he trusted to, that God was everywhere present with him, able to protect him, and faithful in the discharge of his promise. God is the proper object of faith, on which it rests, from which it expects every good and to which it returns the glory for all. Oh, the surpassing excellency of faith! It takes in eternal, invisible, infinite objects. By His providences, God often appears to be against His people, but faith knows He is for them. In this world we are subject to many trials and miseries, but faith knows that All things work together for good to them that love God. Romans 8.28 The bodies of God's children die, are buried, and return to dust. But faith beholds a glorious resurrection for them. Oh, the wondrous power of faith to rise above the things of sight and sense. It is true that neither the impartation of faith nor its growth and exercise lie within our power. Nevertheless, we are responsible to avoid those things which be proud and weaken faith, and we are responsible to nourish faith. How very few make serious efforts to see Him who is invisible. Chapter 19 The Faith of Moses, Part 4, Hebrews 11, verse 28. More is said about Moses than of any other individual in this eleventh chapter of Hebrews. No less than five definite actings of his faith are there recorded. The reason for this is not far to seek. He was the lawgiver, and the boast of the Jews of Christ's day was, We are Moses' disciples. John 9.28 They were seeking acceptance with God on the ground of their own doings. They supposed that their outward conformity to the ordinances of Moses would secure the approbation of heaven, and therefore, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Romans 10 verse 3. It was under this influence that these converted Hebrews had been brought up, and therefore did the Holy Spirit press upon them the fact that it was by faith and not by a legal spirit their renowned ancestor had lived and acted. The particular acting of Moses' faith, which we are now to consider, was one which would be singularly pertinent to the Spirit's design here. It manifested his trust in the Lamb and testified to the value which Moses placed upon the sprinkled blood. Instituting and observing the feast of the Passover, the leader of the Israelites set an example that could not be ignored without fatal consequences. It completely repudiated the awful error of thinking to escape from the wrath of God in consequence of any performances on the part of the creature. It effectually shuts up the sinner to Christ as his only hope. Let it be duly considered that the Passover was the first ordinance given to Israel. How striking it is to see the lawgiver himself preaching by those actings of his recorded in our text. By grace ye are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. How great is the ignorance then when supposes that salvation by grace is peculiar to this Christian dispensation, as though God had had several ways of redeeming sinners. No, my reader, from the beginning to the end of human history, every fallen descendant of Adam, which enters heaven, will owe it to sovereign grace flowing to him through the appointed channel of faith, entirely irrespective of all his works, religious or irreligious, before he first trusts in Christ. Abel was saved thus, Hebrews 11.4, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis six verse eight. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Romans 4.3 And the children of Israel were delivered from the angel of death because they sheltered beneath the blood of the Lamb. That which is now before our consideration formed an appropriate and blessed climax to the actings of Moses' faith recorded here in Hebrews 11. All the others led up to this one. His refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, his choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, his esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, and his forsaking of Egypt, would all have been in vain spiritually, that is, so far as his salvation was concerned, unless Thus had been followed by faith in the Lamb and the efficacy of its blood. Turning away from the world is not sufficient. There must also be a turning unto God. The forsaking of sin is not enough. There must also be the laying hold of Christ. This is what is typically in view in our present text. It is highly important that the closest attention be paid to the order of truth set forth in Hebrews 11.24-28. If this be done, the defectiveness of much modern evangelism will at once be apparent. The keeping of the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood is not the first thing recorded of Moses. No man can rightly value the blood of Christ while his heart is still wrapped up in the world and to invite and exhort him to put his trust in the same, is being guilty of casting pearls before swine. No man can savingly believe in Christ while he is determined to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Repentance precedes faith. Mark 1, verse 15, Acts 20, verse 21, And repentance is a sorrowing over sin a hatred of sin, and a turning from sin. And where there is no genuine repentance, there can be no remission of sins. Mark 1 verse 4 Let every preacher who reads this article carefully weigh all that is here recorded of Moses, and faithfully instruct his congregation that the different exercises of heart recorded in Hebrews 11, 24-27 must precede that which is denoted in verse 28. It is really deplorable that such elementary aspects of truth as we have just pointed out here need to be stressed at this late date. Yet, such is the tragic case. Laodicean Christendom is boasting of its riches and knows not that it is poor and wretched and naked. Part of those riches which she boasts so loudly of today is the great increase of light which it is supposed that the study of prophetic and dispensational truth has brought to us. Yet not only is that a subtle device of Satan's coming as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11:14, 14, to darken men's understandings, and make them believe that his lies are wonderful discoveries and openings up of the Scriptures, but the present generation has far less real life than Christendom enjoyed a century ago. By which we mean, there is far less faithful and fearless preaching of those things which make for practical godliness and holy living. But that is not the worst. Scriptural evangelism has well nigh disappeared from the earth. The gospel which is being preached today is only calculated to deceive souls and bolster them up in a false hope. To make men believe that God loves them while they are under His wrath, see John 3.36, is worse than a physician telling a diabetic subject that he may safely eat all he wishes. To withhold the preaching of the law, its divine authority, its inexorable demands, its spirituality, and requiring inward conformity to it, Matthew 5, 22 and 28, its awful curse is to omit that which alone conveys a true knowledge of sin. See Romans 3, verse 20, 7, verse 7. To cry, Believe, believe, and Say nothing about repentance is to falsify the terms of salvation. Luke 24:47, Acts 17, verse 30. To invite sinners to receive Christ as their Savior before they surrender to Him as their Lord is to present a false way of salvation. To bid the lost come to Christ without telling them they must first forsake the world is to fill the churches with unconverted souls. To tell sinners they may find rest unto their souls without taking Christ's yoke upon them, is to give the lie unto the Master's own teaching. Matthew 11.29 We offer no apology for this seeming digression from our present subject. Once again, we would point out that it is our earnest desire in this book to write something more than a commentary on Hebrews 11, or give a bare exposition of its text, rather do we seek, as the Holy Spirit is pleased to enable, to address ourselves directly to the hearts of our readers, and press upon them the personal and present application of each verse to their own souls. In all probability, a large proportion of the readers of this book are deceived souls, and we do not want to have to answer for their blood in the day to come. Many of them have been lulled to sleep by the conforming evangelism of the day. Therefore we earnestly beg each one to scan these pages to seriously and solemnly ask, Is there anything in my own heart's history which answers to that which is said of Moses in Hebrews 11, 24-27. If there is not, if you are not crucified to the world, Galatians six fourteen, then Satan is fatally deluding you if you imagine that you are under the blood of Christ. Suffer us then, dear reader, to continue addressing you directly for a moment longer. We do not ask... First, are you resting on the finished work of Christ? There are thousands who imagine they are so doing, who have never been converted. No, rather would we inquire, have you made your peace with God? We are well aware that expression is ridiculed and denounced by a certain class who pose as being ultra-spiritual and exceptionally well-taught in the Scriptures but they only betray their ignorance of the word. See Isaiah 27.5, Luke 14.32 By asking whether you have made your peace with God, we mean, have you ceased fighting against Him, and have you yielded to His demands? Have you thrown down the weapons of your rebellion and expressed an honest desire and determination to be in subjection to Him? Have you realized that living to please yourself and have your own way is a species of defiance and have you truly surrendered yourself unto his claims? Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Hebrews 11.28 Let it be pointed out again that This was the point unto which all the previous actings of Moses' faith led. While it is true that no sinner can keep the Passover or find protection under the sprinkling of blood while his heart still loves the world and is filled with its idols, nevertheless his separation from and relinquishing of all which is opposed to God obtains not salvation for him the blotting out of sins does not become ours until the atonement of Christ is received into our hearts by faith. Thus, by taking Hebrews 11, 24-28 as a whole, we see how both the righteousness and the grace of God were honored and magnified. Our present verse, 28, looks back to and gives an abridgment of that which is recorded in Exodus 12. It tells us of a further fruit of a supernatural faith. At first sight, it may appear unto many that this particular work of faith is far less remarkable than some of those which have engaged our attention in previous articles. Yet, when it be duly considered, when all the attendant circumstances are properly weighed, it will be seen that the conduct of Moses on this occasion was as much opposed to human reason and carnal wisdom and issued from a divine work of grace in his heart as did Abraham's leaving of Chaldea for an unknown country, his offering up of Isaac, or Joseph's making mention of the departing of the children of Israel. We quote now from another who has brought up this point most forcibly and helpfully. The institution of the Passover was an act of faith, similar to that of Noah's preparation of the ark. Hebrews 11:7. To realize what this faith must have been, we have to go back to that night and note the special circumstances which can alone explain the meaning of the words by faith. God's judgments had been poured out on Egypt and its king and its people. A crisis had arrived, for after nine plagues had been sent, Pharaoh and the Egyptians still remained obdurate. Indeed, Moses had been threatened with death if he ever came into Pharaoh's presence again. Exodus 10:28 and 29. On the other hand, the Hebrews were in more evil case than ever, and Moses, who was to have delivered them, had not made good his promises. It was at such a moment that Moses heard from God what he was to do. To sight and to sense, it must have seemed most inadequate and quite unlikely to accomplish the desired result. Why should this last plague be expected to accomplish what the nine had failed to do with all their cumulative terrors? Why should the mere sprinkling of the blood have such a remarkable effect? And if they were indeed to leave Egypt that same night, why should the people be burdened with all those minute ceremonial observances at the very moment when they ought to be making preparation for their departure? Nothing but faith could be of any avail here. Everything was opposed to human understanding and human reasoning with all the consciousness of ill success upon him, nothing but unfeigned faith in the living God and what he had heard from him could have enabled Moses to go to the people and rehearse all the intricacies of the paschal observances and tell them to exercise the greatest care in the selection of the lamb on the tenth day of the month, to be slain on the fourteenth day, and eaten with to them, an unmeaning ceremonial. It called for no ordinary confidence in what Moses had heard from God to enable him to go to his brethren who, in their deep distress, must have been ill-disposed to listen, for hitherto his efforts had only increased the hatred of their oppressors and their own miseries as bondmen. It would, to human sight, be a difficult if not impossible task to persuade the people and convince them of the absolute necessity of complying with all the minute details of the observance of the Paschal Ordinance. But this is just where faith came in. This was just the field on which it could obtain its greatest victory. Hence we read that, by faith, every difficulty was overcome. The faith was observed and the exodus accomplished. All was based on the hearing of faith. The words of Jehovah produced the faith and were at once the cause and effect of all the blessings. E. W. Bullinger It should be evident, then, from what has been pointed out here, that the actions of Moses recorded in Exodus 11 and 12 Proceeded from no mere natural faith, but were the supernatural fruit issuing from a supernatural root. His conduct must have exposed him unto the ridicule of the Egyptians, but with implicit confidence in the wisdom, distinguishing mercy, and faithfulness of Jehovah, he acted. See here, again, how inseparable are faith and obedience. The very faith of Moses, which is mentioned in our present text, consisted in an implicit compliance with all the regulations specified by the Lord. He observed the Passover in his own person, and he ordered the people to do likewise, though it involved their procuring many thousands of lambs. He observed the Passover in fullest assurance that thereby, all the firstborn of the Hebrews would be delivered. Though all Israel kept the Passover, it was by Moses that God delivered the institution of it. The Passover was one of the most solemn institutions of the Old Testament and one of the most eminent types of Christ. John Owen said, First, it was a land that was the matter of this ordinance. Exodus 12, verse 3. And, in allusion hereunto, as also to other sacrifices that were instituted afterwards, Christ is called the Lamb of God, John 1.29. Second, this Lamb was to be taken out of the flock of the sheep, Exodus 12.5. So was the Lord Jesus to be taken out of the flock of the church of mankind in His participation of our nature. That he might be a meat sacrifice for us, Hebrews 2:14-17. Third, this lamb being taken from the flock was to be set up separate from it, Exodus 12:6. So, although the Lord Christ was taken from amongst men, yet he was separate from sinners, Hebrews 7:26. That is. Absolutely free from all that contagion of sin which others are infected with all fourth this lamb was to be without blemish exodus twelve five which is applied unto the Lord Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot Peter 1 Peter Fifth, this lamb was to be slain and was slain accordingly exodus twelve six so was Christ slain for us, a lamb in the efficacy of his death, slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 Six, this lamb was so slain as that it was a sacrifice. Exodus 12.27 It was the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. And Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. First Corinthians 5.7 Seventh, the lamb being slain was to be roasted, Exodus 12, 8-9, which signified the fiery wrath that Christ was to undergo for our deliverance. Eighth, that neither shall ye break a bone thereof, verse 46, was expressly to declare the manner of the death of Christ, John 19, verses 33-36. Ninth. The eating of Him which was also enjoined and that holy and entirely, Exodus 12, verses 8 and 9, was to instruct the church in the spiritual food of the flesh and blood of Christ, in the communication of the fruit of His mediation unto us by faith. Unquote. Through faith He kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest He that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Hebrews 11.28 Two things are here noted separately, the Lamb and its blood. In type, they spoke distinctively of the person and work of Christ, for it was the person of Christ which gave value to His work, His divine person being the altar which sanctified the offering of His humanity. Matthew twenty three nineteen. This is ever the order of Scripture. Behold, one the Lamb of God, which too, taketh away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine. I determined not to know anything among you save one, Jesus Christ, and two, Him crucified. 1 Corinthians two verse two. In the midst of the elders stood one a Lamb, two. As it had been strained, Revelation 5:6. Here is the analogy of faith for the preacher to follow today. It is not the blood which is first to be proclaimed to the sinner, but the wondrous and glorious God-Man Mediator who shed His blood for His people. The Hebrews equally with the Egyptians. Were exposed unto the divine vengeance when the angel of death went forth on his dread work that memorable night, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans three twenty three, and not but their facing the substitutionary death of an innocent victim between their guilty selves and unholy God could protect from the judgment announced against them. Trusting in their descent from Abraham would avail them not. Appeal to their good works and religious performances would have sufficed not. They might have spent the entire night in fasting and prayer, and penitently confessing their sins and crying unto God for mercy, but none of those exercises would have stood them in any good stead. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Exodus 12.13 made known the only central requirement. So it is now. Nothing but the blood of Christ can cleanse from sin and deliver from the death penalty of God's broken law. Through faith, or better, by faith, for the Greek here is the same as in the previous verses, he kept the Passover, that is, both instituted and observed it as the Redeemer did His own supper. And the sprinkling of blood, this emphasizes an important distinction. Without shedding of blood is no remission, Hebrews 9.22, and without sprinkling of blood, compare 1 Peter 1, verse 2, the virtues of Christ's atonement are not brought into the soul. The sprinkling of the blood has reference to the application to one's own self. The shedding of Christ's blood is the ground on which atonement was made for the sins of His people. The sprinkling of it is the means of reaping benefit thereby. The sprinkling of the blood on the door of the house in Exodus 12.13 was both a sign to the destroyer that he should not enter and an assurance to the household that they were safe. It is by the spiritual sprinkling or applying of Christ's blood that all the benefit thereof redounds to us. It corresponds to the laying of a plaster on a sword, to the drinking of a wholesome potion, to the eating of food, to the putting on of a garment. The benefit of all these arises from a fit application of them. The blood of Christ is sprinkled on the soul in two ways. First, by the spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 6:11, who inwardly persuades the soul of the right that it has to Christ and to all that he did and suffered for our redemption. Second, by faith, Acts 15:9, for faith is the hand of the soul which receives all spiritual benefits. Faith moves the regenerated soul to rest upon Christ for a personal benefit of His obedience unto death. On this ground the Apostle exhorts, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil, guilty conscience. Hebrews 10.22 Lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Hebrews 11.28 Primarily, the destroyer was the Lord Himself, Exodus 12 verses 12 and 23. Secondarily and instrumentally, the references to an angel. Compare 2 Samuel 24:16, 2 Kings 19:35. Whoever is not sprinkled with the blood of Christ is exposed to the anger of God. But. So secure are those who are under the same that the destroyer shall not so much as touch them. He shall do them no harm. Compare First John 5 verse 18. God proportioned his judgment upon Egypt according to their sin. Pharaoh had ordered his people to cast every son born unto the Hebrews into the river. Exodus 1 verse 22. And now their firstborn were to be slain. Thus God manifested the equity of his proceedings against them. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Galatians 6 verse 7. Our verse as a whole teaches Christians that there must be the exercise of faith in order to a right use of the means and institutions which God has appointed whether in reading the word in prayer in baptism or the Lord's supper without faith it is impossible to please him Hebrews 11:6 it also shows us that real faith will not use that for which it has no divine warrant and active obedience unto the authority of Christ in his commands is exactly required in all that we do in divine worship. Well suited to the case of the Hebrews was this example of Moses, to exercise faith in the Lamb and persevere in the duties which God has appointed. No matter how unreasonable it might seem to carnal wisdom, no matter what inconvenience and persecution it might entail, trust in and obedience to the Lord was their duty and blessedness. Chapter 20 The Faith of Israel Hebrews 11 verse 29 The Apostles' object in this eleventh chapter of Hebrews is to show the power of real faith in God to produce supernatural acts, to overcome difficulties which are insuperable to mere nature, and to endure trials which are too much for flesh and blood to bear up under. Various examples have been adduced in illustration. A further notable one is now before us. In it, we see how faith enabled Israel to fearlessly venture themselves to enter a strangely formed valley between two mountainous ridges of water and to reach in safety the opposite shore. In like manner, a real faith in God will enable the Christian to pass through trials and troubles which destroy multitudes of his fellow creatures and which will in due time conduct him into the enjoyment of perfect bliss. The force of this example is greatly heightened by a striking and most solemn contrast. The power of faith in enabling Israel to safely cross the dread Sea is demonstrated by the hopeless and hopeless destruction of the Egyptians, who sought to follow them. The Egyptians pursued and in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Exodus 14.23 But they had no faith. They were moved by passion, by hatred of the Hebrews, It was night when the army of God undertook their strange journey, yet though dark, the house of Pharaoh presumptuously and blindly followed, but now had arrived the hour when the long insulted divine forbearance was to be avenged, and it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud, and troubled the host of the Egyptians, and took off their chariot wheels, that they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. Exodus 14, verses 24 and 25. But it was too late. The haughty monarch of Egypt and his powerful retinue, now discovered how vain it was to fling themselves against the bosses of Jehovah's Butler. That which had been a channel of deliverance to the believing Israelites became the grave of their enemies. Thereby, are we shown that all attempts of unbelievers to obtain what faith secures is utterly futile and doomed to certain disappointments.